Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times bestseller, multiple novels and nonfiction books. He's a Middle East expert. He's founder of the Joshua Fund. He's a husband and father of four boys. And the best thing about Joel, apart from all those credentials, apart from the fact that you see him on Fox News, you see him uh, all across the news networks give his opinions on the Middle East, is the fact that his heart breaks for the Middle East. His heart breaks for Israel, his heart breaks for Iran. And it's genuine. I've gotten a chance to spend with him the last couple of days and watched him genuinely well up with emotion over what the Lord is doing. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to have him here, and I know that you're looking forward to hearing from him, but know that he's genuine, and what you hear from him comes from a place where he wants people to know Jesus. So please join me in welcoming Joel C. Rosenberg. Good evening. What a joy to be with you. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, break bread with you. Uh, especially you're thinking, okay, why is this Jewish boy here on, on Yom Kippur? And, um, and that's because God doesn't just love the Jew. Uh, God loves the people of Iran. He loves the Muslim people. And he is doing something extraordinary in this generation and uh, I, I'm grateful for the New Covenant for many reasons, but one of which is because I got to eat tonight. Um, you know, we're, we're supposed to be fasting. And um, so if you're doing Jewish and you're coming, invited to a dinner with former Muslims uh, who want to reach Iran for Jesus, you know, that's not normal for our team. But uh, I'm deeply, deeply grateful. You know, when my father came to faith in Jesus as Messiah, uh, he did so around uh, six months after my mother. This was 1973. And uh, my, my father was raised Orthodox Jewish. Okay, so uh, I don't think he'd ever ret, met an Iranian. I think that's fairly safe to say in Brooklyn. And uh, when he became a follower of Jesus, he thought he was the first Jewish person since the Apostle Paul to believe this. He never met a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. He never even heard of a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. And in 1973, there weren't that many. But God is doing a great thing among the Jews. But at this stage in history, he's doing something even more sweeping, something more powerful among Muslims. And that makes me very jealous, i got to say. right? Because my heart is to reach Israel with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reach every Jew and every Gentile in the land of Israel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as I was joking with Hormoz and Donnell tonight, I, you know, if it were easy to reach Israel with the gospel, it would have been done by now. It's the first country. But God's plan, supernaturally, prophetically, is to bring Gentiles into the kingdom and to make us jealous. See, Jews were made, we were, the, one, the reason we were made by God was to know him and to make him known. Uh, but, you know, we're a stiff-necked people, generally, and um, we're not, we haven't always responded, as you know, uh, positively uh, to the gospel. And so one of the things that God did in, in sending a terrorist into Damascus and then leading him into the kingdom, that was Saul, and then sending him out as an apostle, was say, look, I'm going to take a Jewish guy, I'm going to take him to reach the nations, and as the nations come to faith, this is going to drive Jews insane, not insane, but... It, but 
it's going to prompt us, it's going to provoke us to jealousy. Now, it's true over the history uh, of the last 2,000 years that uh, Gentiles in many ways have provoked the Jews, but not always to jealousy, okay? So, but, this, but something extraordinary is happening in the Muslim world. More Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in our generation than at any other time in the last 14 centuries of Islam. That is an amazing thought. And in fact, some would argue that more people, more Muslims have left Islam and come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last 30 or 40 years than in all of the 14 centuries of Islam combined. And I think that's a reasonable assessment. The question is why, and now what's going to happen with uh, the large, largest Shia Muslim country in the world, Iran? What's going to happen with the driver of the Islamic revolution? Uh, what's going to happen with Iran? Are they, are they being swept up in what God is doing as he pours out his Holy Spirit? And why is this happening? This is happening because Jesus is coming back. Now, just to be clear, I'm not Harold Camping. I don't know when he's coming back. Okay, I can't tell you when the rapture is going to happen, so uh, we're not doing Q&A tonight anyway, but just don't come up and say, so just to be clear, when is all that? I don't know. I don't know. But the Lord Jesus told us that, you know, he gave us a whole list of things that would be happening as we get closer and closer to both the rapture and the second coming, and this would be wars and rumors of wars. Okay, check, check. The persecution of the church check. People betraying one another, check. Uh, people's love for one another growing cold, check. The whole list of terrible things that would be happening, a lot of bad news that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24, in Luke chapter 21, in Mark chapter 13, and of course all the prophets and the apostles give us a, a, a very daunting and sobering list of things that will happen in the last days of history, as we get closer to seeing Christ face to face. But there is some good news in that list. And the most important one, in my mind, is Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus said, in the midst of all these terrible things that would be happening as we get closer to his return, that would be signs that, that he's getting closer. And when you see all these signs, know that he is near, that his hand is right on the door. But amidst of all those bad things, Matthew 24, 14 gives us good news. Jesus told us, he told his disciples, sitting in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, looking out over that historic but rebellious city, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news about the kingdom of Christ and that the fact that people could enter it, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. Jesus is not going to come back for the full second coming, the literal, physical, actual return of Jesus Christ to the earth in Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, splitting that mountain in half. He will not come until every single person in every single country has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exciting because he doesn't want to return without people having had a chance to hear the good news and then make a decision to receive Jesus Christ by faith, through grace, or to reject him. 
everyone's going to get that chance. And in the, in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And, you know, he had some credibility in saying that. He had just risen from the dead. Right? The firstborn from among the dead. The first one to be resurrected. And he said, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Not just the friendly nations. Not just the easy nations. Not just the democracies and the free market nations, but the difficult nations. The dangerous nations. The deadly nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the church has not done well at that. I mean, we've tried in many ways, but in the area of Islam, I mean, I think we have to be honest, the church has been weak. We have felt that the power of Islam was too strong for the church. Now, that doesn't mean every single person. There's been heroes who have gone to reach the Muslim people. And they saw very little fruit for a long time. And, and for many of them, it, it, it cost them their lives. But something extraordinary has changed. God has begun to pour out his Holy Spirit in a way that is, that is mind-blowing. And yet most of the world, even much of the church, isn't aware of it. That this is the season. It's like the curtain is being lifted. And now the great drama of bringing Jew, uh, Muslims into the kingdom prior to the Jews coming into the kingdom in full is happening. We are seeing it happen. And this ministry, Iran Alive Ministries, is playing, a, by God's grace and his choice sovereignly, a really critical role in that. I want to look at a text tonight and, and, and put this in, in very clear biblical context of what's happening and why it's happening and where it's headed. And in Jeremiah chapter 49, we see the prophecy concerning Elam. This is Jeremiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 34 and going to the end of the chapter. So I know you didn't bring your Bibles tonight. Uh, you can look on your smartphones if you like, but I'll, I'll walk it through for a moment. And I want to just take a few moments and... Read this text because it's so important. And then let's take a few moments to talk about what it means and what it means to us. Now, Elam, let's just say, uh, make that point, is, is one of the ancient names for Iran. And so this is a prophecy uh, about the future of the country we know today as Iran. It's one of several prophecies in the Bible. Another major uh, last days prophecy about Persia, about Iran, is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And for any of you that have tracked my writings over the years, know that that's an area that I'm very interested in and have written about quite a bit. Tonight I want to focus on this passage. So beginning in verse 34 of Jeremiah chapter 49. And by the way, it comes just a few verses after the prophecy about the complete and utter destruction of Damascus. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Uh, but uh, these are some of the, the difficult and, 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 and painful things that will be happening in the last days of history. Jeremiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 34. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, concerning Elam, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, of hosts. Behold, I am going to break 
the bow of Elam, the finest of their might. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of the earth, from the four ends of heaven, rather, and will scatter them to all these winds. And there will be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam will not go. So I will shatter Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their lives. And I will bring calamity upon them. Even my fierce anger declares the Lord, and I will send out the sword after them until I have consumed them. Let's just stop there for a moment. There's a couple more verses, but let's unpack those first. Okay, this is the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. Jeremiah being a Hebrew prophet, obviously, uh, living in the 7th century and, and, and speaking the word of God to the people of, it, of his time, but also, of course, writing these uh, words down, the words of God, these prophecies, some of which were about his time, but some of which were about uh, the end of times. And this is a section about the end of times. And in fact, in verse 39, which we'll go into more, it talks about this will happen in the last days. A biblical phrase talking about the period of time leading up to the day of the Lord, the actual, literal, physical day that Jesus comes back to the planet. So Jeremiah is, is, is told this word from God. He didn't come up with this. Uh, and it's about Elam. Again, this is, about, uh, this is an ancient name for what we call Iran. And God says specifically, I'm going to break the military might of Elam. I'm going to break the bow of Elam. The finest of their soldiers, the finest of their might, he says he's going to break them. God is going to break them. He says that in this context of uh, when this judgment is coming, he's going to scatter the people of Iran to the four winds. And it says that there's not a nation on the earth to which the outcasts of Iran will not go. This is fascinating for lots of reasons, but you know the Persian people are very proud people. They have a great history. It's, a, it's an amazing history. Uh, they, of course, conquered the Babylonians. We know that. Uh, and by the way, God has done so much in the life of Iran in Persia, and, and, there, and there are so many Bible characters who live there whom God ministered to there, whom God used to minister to others there. It's really amazing. Obviously, Queen Esther, queen of Persia. Mordecai, an advisor to uh, his cousin, as well as to, of course, uh, the king, and helped save the life of the king of Persia. Uh, and in fact, God did a great thing in that story of Esther. Not just to save the Jews, but if you read the full text, you'll find that people, the, the, the Persians were so awestruck by what God had done with the Jews, they decided to follow the God of the Jews. Many Persians were saved, if you read to the end of the book of Esther. Uh, Daniel, of course, was there and, and was an advisor to the king. And, and it's, it's really amazing how many times God has shown his great love for the people of Persia, the people of Elam, the people of the country we know as Iran. God has done great things there, but he's going to do something uh, to bring judgment. And he says that he's going to scatter them. Now, the Persian people are very proud people. They don't, they don't leave Persia. I mean, they might go out and conquer and establish a kingdom, but they, they, most generally speaking, Persians don't want to leave 
They, they love their country. They love their traditions. They love their, uh, their music and the, and the history and the art. And they, you know, the, why would they, why, why go anywhere? But God is going to scatter them. And in fact, I believe this happened in 1979. When the uh, Shah of Iran was toppled in the Islamic Revolution and the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power, one of the things that's interesting is that there was a great scattering of the Iranian people. Many Iranians were uh, terrified by the rise of Khomeini. Not all. I mean, many thought he was, well, some thought he was the 12th imam, that he was the Messiah. <clears throat> Millions were saying, you know, February 1st, 1979, lining the streets of uh, to Tehran airport and all the way into Tehran saying, you know, the Holy One has come. The Holy One has come. Khomeini never formally said that he was the Messiah, but he didn't really deny it either. And it worked to his political advantage to have people perceive him as such. But so many people were excited about the rise of Khomeini. Hormoz was excited about the rise of Khomeini. Donnell was excited about the rise of Khomeini. And, and, and not, you know, they don't, they're not now, but I just, you know, I don't know if you know the whole story, but just to be clear, you know, I just want to. But people were excited. They thought Islam is, you know, is ascendant. But many people were scared, and many people were, were supportive of the Shah, and, and people scattered. <clears throat> and not only did they scatter, but many in those years uh, leading up to 1979 uh, were students, and they had been sent out or had opportunities to go out and study in the United States and other countries. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Iranian students were, were studying all over the world, and suddenly they couldn't come back or didn't want to. And Persians were doing business all over the world, and some of them didn't want to come back, and some of them couldn't. And so suddenly you had a diaspora. You had Iranians away from their home. They had been away voluntarily for a season, but now they had decided they didn't want to come back because of the, this revolution that they did not agree with, they did not support, or they began to see the violence that was emerging. And now there are an estimated 5 million Iranians in the United States alone. And that's an extraordinary thing to have so many Iranians outside of Iran. I believe that we've already seen that portion of the passage um, come true. And one could argue, I, I, I'm not definitive on this for myself, but that the fall of the Shah and his American-backed military began the process of breaking this military might of Iran. That then when the Iran-Iraq war led to the death of a million people, uh, all told on both sides. Um, this helped, this was part of the shattering of the Iranian military and caused Iran actually to turn to the Russians to begin to resupply uh, in the 1990s. God said he would shatter Iran. Now he didn't say how, he doesn't exactly say if if this is a country that's going to be invaded or it's going to be attacked in, in other ways. Uh, but obviously, something bad is going to happen. That's the language of the text. It doesn't give us precision and how, and it doesn't give us precision when. But, but verse 37, God is taking responsibility for shattering Elam before their enemies. The people would see the military and political might of Iran be shattered. And that God is going to bring calamity on the people of Iran. And the question is why? Well, we have a hint of it at the end of verse 37. God says he will do this 
quote, even in my fierce anger, unquote, God said he is angry. He's angry about what's happened in Iran. Now, I want to be clear that he says in a few moments that he's going to destroy, this is in, in 38, he's going to destroy out of Iran the king and his princes. God uses this text to very specifically target, that being a term of the day, target the leadership, the government, the ruling structure of Iran. We were on uh, live television inside Iran. We, were, uh, we went live last night. Uh, Formos was interviewing me about this passage, Jeremiah 49. And it was uh, airing live inside Iran this morning. And, uh, and it, I, I think it, it was, they were going to re-air it as well. Um, we talked about this. And I said, you know, just to be clear, I mean, we, you know, Ezekiel 33 talks about... Uh, we have the responsibility of being watchmen on the wall. And when the watchman on the wall, somebody who, who has the responsibility to see danger coming, to see a sword coming, to see war coming, and, and his responsibility is to see it and to, and to warn people. And, and the Bible told Ezekiel in this concept of the watchman on the wall, if the watchman sees danger coming, if he sees a war coming, and he does not warn people, Judgment will fall on the people whom God is going to judge, and they will die in their sin. But God said he would cause the blood of these folks to be on the hands of the watchmen. That's a sobering thought. We hear, we see text that's clear that judgment is coming on Iran, and specifically on its leaders. And yet most People in the church have never read these prophecies. Most people in the church aren't aware. They haven't studied these prophecies. How would we expect the people of Iran to know them? How would we expect the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Hamanai, how would, we, how would he know this prophecy? How would we expect President Hassan Rouhani to know this prophecy? How would we know, expect the military leaders to know this prophecy or the people? Well, just like the good news, People won't know the bad news unless we tell them. Now the question is, how do we tell them? With a heart of love and compassion? But that's what Jeremiah was told to do, and that's what we're told to do, is to proclaim the good news, but to make sure people understand it's not, you could, you could believe it if you wanted to, but there's really no downside to continuing on in your lives as it is. No, God has fierce anger for the government of Iran. And I don't know that it's necessary in this room to catalog the reasons why he might have not just anger, but fierce anger. But this is a government, a regime, beginning in 1979 with the Ayatollah Khomeini and continuing on to the present that has ruined the nation of Iran, crushed it, enslaved it. People have died. People have been tortured. People have been killed. And, it, and there's so much, there was so much excitement in 79. The, the, the sense of revolution was so exciting that finally they were free from, from the Shah. And they had decided now, now Islam is the answer and jihad is the way. And not only do we want the revolution, but we agree with the Ayatollah Khomeini that we want to export the revolution. 
We want every country to be like us. There was such palpable, fervent passion for the Islamic revolution, and that is all gone now. People have gotten to see what it really looks like, and it's painful. And this, this collapse of expectations, this belief that Khomeini might be the Messiah, and then to watch him cruelly terrorize his own people, to crush their dreams and their hopes for the future, for their, themselves, for their children, to ruin the economy, to become an international outcast, to, 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 to let blood run in the streets, to, to, to arrest and terrorize and torture and, and kill uh, dissidents, anyone who disagreed with the regime. This has driven the country into despair, into drinking, some of the highest rates of alcoholism on the planet. It's driven the country to drugs. People are trying to medicate themselves to not feel the despair and the pain that has been caused by the leaders of Iraq. And because it's not just a political system, uh, Islam, and certainly Shia Islam, and certainly Iranian practice uh, uh, Shia Islam, Sharia law, it's all tied together. It's the clerics and the government all in one big unhappy family. And God is angry. This is a regime of darkness, and it, it, is, it, is, it has actively tried to crush the church. And God is angry. And he's not just angry. There's a fierce anger. And judgment is coming. Now, I'm guessing that if you, you know, your decision to come here, you know, you're not supporters of the regime. That, though if you are, we... We love you, and we want you to know Jesus also. But we had to say on the program last night, again, air that was live this morning, but this judgment's coming. But we spoke specifically. I spoke specifically to the leaders of the regime. You know, I don't know that they were watching, but I don't know that they weren't. How else would I, a Jew who believes in Jesus, who worked for Prime Minister Netanyahu, what's the chance of me sitting down with the supreme leader of Iran. But even if he wasn't watching, his intelligence services were watching, and they're recording it, and it's going to get sent up the system. I, that's my prayer, that they pay attention to this, that this becomes something that people talk about, not out of glee, out of sadness, out of, you know, the same, but many of us, we don't want to say that. Who wants to go on television and potentially risk your life to say something like that? But that's, what, that's our responsibility. And, and, and we're going to stand before Jesus one day, and we'll have, we'll, we have proclaimed the whole counsel of God to the people of Iran. But there's good news. God does continue to say he's going to send a sword after them. It does seem to imply that it's going to be military, a military attack, that it won't necessarily simply be a supernatural fire from heaven or something. But it could include that. But it says, and God says he's going to destroy the king and the princes. So I, you know, we, we said to the king and the princes, we appealed to them by name, repent. God loves you. He does not want, maybe you won't be the king that, that God is going to destroy. 
Repent and give your life to Christ while there's time. We're saying this out of love, not out of malice. So that's the bad news. There's a terrible evil that is being done in Iran, and there's a terrible evil being done by Iran. And it's causing tremendous effect up to and including the war in, in Syria right now. But there is good news. And that's what's so powerful. Verse 38, it's, it's extraordinary. Right before he says he's going to destroy the king, the supreme leader, and the princes of Iran, God says this. Then, when he's done this judgment, I will set my throne in Iran. Let me say that again. God says, I will set my throne in Iran. Now, as a Jew, you just say, um, excuse me, um, flag on the play, um, I need a judge's ruling, excuse me, um, just to be clear, aren't you sitting your throne in Jerusalem? Didn't you choose Jerusalem? Now, we Jews, you know, you know, a lot of Gentiles are like, oh, you Jews, you think you're the chosen people. You think you're so special. Look, we don't even want to be chosen. <laughs> How has that worked out well for us? You know, the Pharaoh chose us. Hitler chose us. Stalin chose us. Mahmoud Ahmad genocide chose us. Khomeini, Khamenei, all the manies, that we don't, we don't want to be chosen. But give us this, God chose Jerusalem to be his own. He said he was going to set his throne in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is touching down. He's not touching down in Tehran. God bless the people of Tehran. He said he's going to come to Jerusalem. And he's going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And when that's all done, and he crushes Satan and conquers him forever and ever and ever, then he's bringing a new Jerusalem. That's the way it's done. Where the Iranians get off saying that they, it's, uh, they get the, the, the throne for themselves. This is the tensions between our two people. No, actually, no, this is God himself saying it. Now, if, if, if Hormoz had said it, I'd be like, brother, I love you, but that's bad her hermeneutics. You, 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 can't, you can't make the, the throne come over to your country. We, we love you. We want the Iranians to come to Jesus, but you can't have the throne. Apparently, you can. Because he didn't write it. Jeremiah wrote it, and he did it because of the word of God. So it's true. So just because Joel Rosenberg doesn't understand it, big whoop, right? So, so the question is, what, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus is not physically coming back until the second coming, and that's when he's physically going to reign from a throne in Jerusalem. And not in the third temple, which will be built. That's one that's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist, and Jesus is not going to reign on a, you know, a, a washed up, cleaned up, desecrated temple. He'll raise that to the ground and build Ezekiel's temple, described in Ezekiel 40 and onward, it's going to be grand and glorious, and that's where Jesus is going to reign. That, was be, that will be where his throne is. But before that, before the second coming, this text indicates clearly God is going to spiritually move his center of operations into Iran. There is no other country, no other nation that we see this said about it. No other nation is going to see Jesus set his throne there. Now this is spiritual, but wow, the power of that concept 
is game-changing. Let's finish the text. Then I will set my throne in Elam and destroy out of it king and princes. Why does he destroy the king and the princes um, as he sets up his throne? Because the Ayatollah Khamenei is not the supreme leader of Iran. Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, is the supreme leader of Iran, and he will get that praise. He will be known that way, and he's becoming known that way now. Now he's going to do this, and, and it says, declares the Lord, verse 39, but it will come about in the last days. This is going to come about in the last days of history, and it says, God says, I, that I will restore the fortunes of Iran, of Elam, declares the Lord. Now, that may involve uh, uh, financial prosperity. It, it, that's possible. But that's not what God primarily is interested in, in any people. In fact, if economic and political and social and uh, upheaval and, and trauma is necessary to help people let go of anything or anyone else they're holding on to other than Christ, for their hope and their peace and their eternal salvation, he'll allow a country to go through terrible shaking. So we don't know for certain that we're talking financial prosperity here. We do know the, the spiritual fortunes of Iran will be restored. And that's exciting. That means that Iran is going to become a, a nation transformed by Christ. It's going to be transformed by Christianity. Iran is going to be known as a Christian country. I can't tell you that every single person in Iran is going to become a follower of Christ, but an awful lot of people in Iran will, and it's already happening. More Iranians have come to Christ in the last 40 years than at any other time in human history. In 1979, there were less than 500 Shia Muslim converts to Christianity in all of Iran. Less than 500. Today, it's estimated that there are more than 1 million Shia Muslims who've, who've left Islam and become followers of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Amidst this bad news of what the government and the, and the clerics in Iran have done, amidst the bad news of the judgment that's coming, God is moving very powerfully. And we need to be able to look at the world not just with geopolitical lenses and not just with economic lenses, but we need to see what's happening in Iran and throughout the Muslim world and throughout the Middle East with what I call the third lens, the lens of Scripture. And Scripture tells us a great day for the Iranian people is coming spiritually as Christ uh, puts his throne there. Now let me make a few last points about this. And then in a moment I want to introduce uh, the man whom God is using right now as one of the, the key leaders to reach the people of Iran with the gospel. And, I, and, I, and, I, and before the night's out, I, want, I really want you to be praying to become a prayer partner and a financial supporter of Iran Alive Ministries. But let me make a few last points on this. One of the implications of, of Jesus setting, his, setting up his, his uh, center of spiritual operations in Iran, again, aside from making Jews jealous, uh, but in addition to that, I believe that what this means is Iran will not only be a, a country where, where many millions of uh, Iranians are leaving Islam and becoming followers of Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit and transformed, not just that, but it's going to become a sending country. It's going to be a country that where, where former Muslims are, who now love Jesus and are empowered by the Holy Spirit are going to be part of a, 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 a Jesus revolution. And think of the, 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 the power of 
of, of Shia Muslims and, and, and their passion, their fervency to change the world. The Islamic Revolution, we all know about it, right? We all know uh, how committed people are even to dying, to martyrdom. This is a central feature of Shia Islam. Well, imagine that transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, where now you're not wanting to die, but you're willing to. Where you're willing to go into another country to blow up that country, what if you wanted to go in that and now preach the gospel and save that country? Shia Muslims, when they come to Christ, are, are transformed and they become transformers. God is using Iranians in a similar way, I would say, to how he brings Jews into the kingdom. When Jews who are designed to know Christ and designed to make him known actually know him, God can use us to do great things. And I believe Iranians are our cousins. And that God is going to show the way and reach all these countries in the Middle East, the hardest, the difficult countries, the deadly countries, the most dangerous and difficult countries, using Iranians. I'm excited. Now here's the challenge. The challenge is the government doesn't want this to happen. The mullahs don't want this to happen. And it's very difficult to get in there and do this work. But we are living in a generation where this is possible, where because of the miracle of satellite television technology, you can go right over the heads of the mullahs, right over the heads of the government, right into the homes, the living rooms, the bedrooms of Iranians who've rejected Islam already and, and now are literally searching. They're, they're searching. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, I'm in Texas, so I can quote country music, I, I, I think. Um, and they're searching. And so they're, you know, you probably know it's illegal to own a satellite dish in Iran. That's why everyone has one. It, it, it's like a rebelliousness in them. Like, you can't have it? Great, I, I want two. You know? and, so, and so people are watching and they're hungry. They're, the, there's a desperation for outside information to be connected to the world, to be connected to ideas other than, than Hamanai other than Ahmadinejad, other than Rouhani. So they search through the dial, and they're like, okay, no, 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 no. State-run television, state-run television, state-run, you know, porn, uh, soccer, 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 <laughs> soccer, soccer, state-run television, Hamanai. Wait, what did that guy say? No, go back, go back to that one. What it, talking about Jesus. What, what, what's going, wait, wait, let, let, wait, everyone quiet down. I want to hear this. I, what, what, what is this guy saying? And that they find hormones. They find hormones and they find this guy who, in 1979, he and his wife were radical Shia Muslims with millions of others saying, death to America, death to America. Then they thought, well, you know, maybe not death to America quite yet. We'd like to go to graduate school over there. <laughs> and of course, our State Department said, sure, come right in. Death to America, sign here. <laughs> but thank God that... They, they did, and this is where they came to Christ. This is where God changed them. This is where God transformed them. This is where he gave them the opportunity to start telling other people about the life-changing power of Jesus. And people, Iranians started coming to Jesus. Who knew? This is when they planted a congregation. This is when they saw it grow. And then they began to see the power of satellite television technology to go reach the country they love to reach the country they could not go back to and reach the country that normal, everyday missions activity would not work, but satellite television does. 
this is one of the reasons I love these two and their team, because I'm jealous of what I see happening. And I say that, you know, purely, I, I hope. I believe God is moving so powerfully in Iran. And my job as a Jewish believer in Jesus is to support it, to encourage it, to let other people know about it. Because Jesus, you know, say, people say, oh, I'm not doing anything to help Iran. They're, they're our enemies. Yeah, so that's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Oh, come on. That's what he said. And I don't want to be someone who writes about and speaks about God's love for Israel and these prophecies that are going to happen in Iran and elsewhere. And I don't want to get there one day and stand before Jesus and have him say, see, just to be clear, you wrote about it, you talked about it, why exactly didn't you do anything to help reach the people of Iran with the gospel while there was still time? Well, you know, I could say, well, I'm Jewish. They, you know, they tell me I could get into Iran, but geez, they just don't think I could get out. <laughs> I work for Netanyahu. They don't really, you know, you can't really go over there and say, but Jesus doesn't give us, he doesn't let us have those excuses. He said, well, did you team up with people who can do it? Did you use the assets I gave you, the, the gifts and the skills, to help them? And this is why it's a great joy. 